Hi, I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. Today, we're continuing our series with the 11 pre-linguistic skills that all toddlers must master before words emerge. And again, if you've been listening to this series, you'll know that these skills are applicable to children, whether they talk on time or our little late-talking friends. And again, it doesn't really matter what the diagnosis is. All of these skills are so important, and all of these skills come in right as and just before we see children um, acquiring words. And, and let me restate that a little bit. It's a, it's a pretty, not necessarily sequential, but there's a continuum here. And we really do see all 11 skills present uh, when a child or before a child begins to use words. So I want to be sure that you are understanding that. And when we have children who are missing just one or two of these little skills, they may start to say some words, but something's still off with them. They're not really communicating. They may be talking or not really using their words yet. They don't understand the power of communication. Or again, there just might be something off. They, they could be using words, but they're not really following directions. And so you know that there's such a gap there. And so that's why understanding all of these 11 skills and how important they are is so important, especially for therapists, because this is what we need to be looking for when we work with children in this toddler and early preschooler range, especially our little friends who are still minimally verbal, even after they've had weeks or months of therapy, and you are just scratching your head wondering what is going on. Now, it's certainly better to look at these skills at the beginning of a therapy program and and really use these skills to design your treatment plans, but sometimes we don't do that. And we have to go back and play catch-up. So if you are a speech-language pathologist or another professional working with children with communication issues and you have those kids on your caseload that you're thinking, I really don't know what's going on here or I'm so frustrated. Or if you as a parent are watching and you're thinking there's still something missing. He only has four or five words and we've been doing this therapy thing for months or maybe longer. This is what you need to do is go back and look at this list and really think what's What areas can I strengthen here? And so many times, it's not that a child doesn't have a little hint of the skill. They just haven't mastered the skill. And no one's worked with them long enough or or paid enough attention to, well, he sort of takes turns, or, well, he kind of follows directions, or his play, eh, he doesn't like a lot of toys. And, And see, that's the problem. We have to strengthen all of these skills. We have to help children master these skills before they are really, really, really ready to use words communicatively as we intend for that to be. So we are looking today at skill number nine in this continuum, but as I always do and I've done in this whole series, we want to review all the skills before we get started to make sure that you are thinking about all of these skills and how important they are. So the first one, and I usually try to do it from memory, but today I'm going to cheat and look at my notes. The first one is reacts to events in the environment. So how do they interact with other objects that or, or things going on around them? Are they paying attention? Uh, do they notice them? Do they alert to sounds in people's voices or visual information like toys that have lights? Do they alert to those kinds of things? Do they alert when someone walks into the room? And then that really leads us to skill number two, which is response to people. It always takes two people to communicate. So when we have a child who is a loner 
or who self-isolates and kind of does his own thing or really kind of avoids interaction or he might be with you for just a split second and then he is gone to do his own thing. He's not responding consistently enough to people and his interaction skills need to be strengthened before he can really, really be a functional communicator. Skill number three is begins turn-taking. So once kids are paying attention to people, then they want to start to interact with you and then there's that nice reciprocity or that back and flow uh, back and forth flow and so that's what <clears throat> begins turn taking really really means that's an important show so go back and listen to that show if you haven't done it yet because that's where I found that so many of our little guys especially kids with red flags for autism we really need to pay attention to that skill and frankly they do not teach us how to do that in grad school <laughs> or it may be something that's just you know to work on turn taking and, and you you know how important it is and what an important foundational piece it is for a child to master yet you're not really addressing that in therapy so go back and watch or listen to that show so that you can really 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 uh, own that information too next would be develops a longer attention span so we all have worked with children who we describe lovingly as busy <laughs> or uh, they're just really, really sensory seekers, if you want to use terminology that's a little bit more, um, uh, just a little bit more professional terminology there, borrowing from our OT friends, but develops a longer attention span. So kids have to learn how to stay with you. The next thing that they really, really do as all of these four skills kind of lead into what therapists call for skill number five, a joint attention. And this is that a child has the ability to pay attention to you and then share an event with you or share something where he knows that you are paying attention to that too and you're really both talking about the same things. And so again, joint attention is another one of those skills that therapists know it should be there, but we don't necessarily know how to work on it. And this is something that I have to remind myself of every single day that I see children. When I have kids that I'm, I'm really, they're having difficulty staying with me or I try to show them something and they're running away or not really attending, that's a problem with joint attention. And so we have to really, again, hone in on that and make sure that we are very, very purposeful and intentional about teaching a child how to shift and share that attention so that they are able to look at something that we present to them and then look back at our faces as we're talking to them and then look back at what we're trying to show them and then look back at our faces so that they can listen and really process uh, the words and really start to link meaning with the words that you know I'm calling this toy uh, a magnet and they hear that word, you know, it might be a new toy for them and a new word for them. And they really learn, oh, that, that's a magnet. And they assign that meaning. And without joint attention, you can't do that. So go back and listen to that show if that's something that uh, you've, you've struggled with. And you, you know to do it as a therapist, but you just don't quite know how to do it. Or you need some help refining your skills in that area. Skill number six is so important. It's plays with a variety of toys appropriately. And if you are an early intervention therapist and you're not really honing in on play, oh my goodness, go back and listen to that show because we have got to help children uh, really have a cognitive foundation to support language learning. And the best way that we can do that, the best way that we can gauge how quote unquote smart a kid is, is by looking at how their play skills are developing. So Cognition is absolutely necessary for language development. When we have children who have uh, gaps in what they understand as compared to their same age peers, their receptive language is delayed. And when you have a receptive language delay, you are always going to have an expressive language delay. Unless you have autism and your profile is reversed where your expressive skills are higher than your receptive skills. But at the same time, you've got to get that receptive 
uh, foundation there. I mean, kids have to understand what words mean before they can functionally use words to communicate. And play actually kind of comes before that. It's what, again, gives us that floor. It gives us that basis for cognitive development. Skill number seven was what I've been talking about a lot understands early words and follows simple directions. And so that, again, was the receptive language piece. And I just preach receptive language because if you've heard me talk at all, you've heard me say receptive language delays are the most overlooked delays in early intervention. So many parents and even professionals miss when a child does not understand language. And so when you have a kid who's not following directions consistently by 18 months, He's got a receptive language problem. I mean, you know, I, I want to say close your test manual. You've got your first goal. <laughs> You've got to work on receptive language with that kid. So that's, that's skill number seven. So go back and listen to that show. If you have a child who's not really following directions consistently or doing other things like pointing to body parts on request or if you're looking at a book with him and you're saying where's the dog or find the truck and he's not able to do that, he has a receptive language problem if he's older than 18 months old. Uh, skill number eight is vocalizes purposefully, and that makes a lot of sense with talking. You really can't talk unless you first know how to control your voice and to vocalize. So such an important show. And a lot of times that's just such a subset of children that we work with. Most of the children that we'll get, even as therapists, come to us already being able to vocalize intentionally. You can see them uh, and hear them whine or yell or do something purposefully. But there are some children who are just so, so, so quiet. And a lot of times we've just got to get that little uh, vocal motor running so that they are able to begin to voice on their own and begin to use their little voices. And then, again, you can't talk until you're noisy. So that's a really, really important thing. And that leads us to today's show with skill number nine, which is imitation. Next time we'll talk about skill number 10, which is uses early gestures. And then after that, it's skill number 11, initiates interaction. Those are important things too. But let's spend some time today talking about skill number nine, which is imitates. And nobody learns how to talk or do anything until they see someone else do it. Now, as adults, we can learn how to do something new from listening to an explanation or maybe reading the information. So as adults, we can really learn in those, those ways. But for a toddler or an early preschool preschooler, the way that they learn is to watch someone else do it and then do it themselves. So that watch and do process is really, really, really what we're talking about with imitation. And so many times with imitation, when we have a child who's not talking, we think, okay, we're, I'm just going to get him to say some words here. And so we do things like as parents, and all of us has, have done it, even if we are therapists, even if we've had six years of school by the time we get to our master's degree, we, we still do these same things as moms. Sometimes we have kind of a disconnect. We have a mom brain and a therapist brain. And, and sometimes we have to work <laughs> to get those to really match up. But as a parent, we know that we want to teach a kid to talk. So we'll put them up on the counter in the high chair, just hold them right in our laps. And we'll just say, mama, 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 or mama, tell me mama, say mama, mama. And we do that and we just work ourselves silly, which for a lot of kids especially kids with typically developing language systems, 
that works. <laughs> they start to copy and imitate that word. And the reason that they can do it is because they've actually mastered the earlier, easier levels of imitation. So when we have a kid that we get in speech therapy, or if you're a parent watching this and you have a child who's not talking yet, imitation is the skill that's missing. Hands down, at the single word level, more than any other thing. I mean, you can almost. I mean, that you can just take that to the bank. <laughs> that a kid that you're seeing for speech therapy really hasn't mastered the ability to repeat single words. Uh, if you're working with toddlers, or in an early intervention program, even like maybe a school setting where you again you have your minimally verbal toddlers or nonverbal toddlers who are or preschoolers who are coming to you, and that's what they're missing. This is the main thing. So some of you. Just to kind of understand this process of imitation and that we don't start with words when we're teaching a child, uh, these, when we're looking at a child who hasn't mastered prelinguistic skills, we don't start at this word level. If you're a therapist and haven't really, haven't really, really, really thought about that information or it's not as relevant to your everyday practice as it should be, this can totally revolutionize your career and your practice because you're going to quit really working on imitation at that single word level right away with the kid unless you know that he has met these easier earlier levels of imitation and let me tell you one let me tell you well let me give you a couple different reasons why imitation is so important studies research tells us that how well a child imitates at 18 months is the best predictor for what his or her language skills will be at 36 months than any other factor that you could look at. And so when we, and this really, again, is, is we can apply it globally. So if we have a typically developing toddler at 18 months who is just a little parrot who just echoes everything, we know that that kid is very likely to be talking in sentences and have a large vocabulary and all of the other things, you know, uh, about a thousand more vocabulary that we want to see by the time that they reach that third birthday. You can use the same information with our little friends with language delays. If they're not imitating anything at 18 months, their prognosis for three without some significant intervention is not very positive. And we do have little friends who are, I think some people call them natural late talkers. There might be a family history of that. And they do go on without, without very much, uh, without us doing very much. And go ahead, and by three, they really are caught up to their peers. But, guys, that's kind of rare. So when we, and this is evidence-based, so when we look at a kid at 18 months who's not imitating, we're really, really concerned about how he or she is going to look at three. And so, again, that's a research link that, that we know. And so we've got to be sure that we're talking with parents about that. And so when we go in with parents and we've gotten a new kid on our caseloads and, we, and they're talking about, you know, why is he not talking? I don't understand why he's not talking. One of the first things we should say to them is, he's not imitating. He's not imitating words yet. And then you walk them backwards and say, you know, he's not imitating words because he's really not imitating any sounds. And then you walk it back again for some kids, <coughs> excuse me, and you say, and he's not really imitating sounds because he's not really doing very much with his mouth. And then you can say, and he's not really doing very much with his mouth because he can't imitate with his body yet. He's not really waving bye-bye. He's not clapping when we clap. He's not doing a lot of those things. And then for some kids, then you go back even further and say, and he's not doing those things because he hasn't learned how to imitate with objects. And so we're going to talk about this continuum today, and I actually walked it back. 
which is what I do a lot of times with parents, again, in sessions where we're starting with, well, he's not talking yet because he can't imitate words and we walk it back. And we're going to talk about this progression today with understanding how imitation develops. And it's a very sequential process like we've talked about. There's a continuum here. And so we don't really see kids start to imitate words if they're not imitating actions with objects. Now, again, there are some outliers sometimes with a particular diagnosis. You might have a kid with with only fine motor delays or something's happened, there's been an injury or some kind of assault to his or her little hands, but cognitively and neurologically, he's okay. And so his language centers are undisturbed. And so he can still imitate some words because the problem really is only here. But for most of our little friends, it is a neurological, there is a neurological difference, which is why they're not talking yet. And again, so we don't really see that disconnect between, oh, a kid can talk, but he can't imitate with objects. Or a kid can talk, but he can't really use his hands for um, waving or for using gestures and that kind of thing. So you have to be super, super careful when you talk to parents about that so they really, really understand what's going on with that and and really understand how imitation develops. All right. Um, it, I think, again, targeting imitation should be our highest priority for any kid who's not talking unless... We've looked at the information that we're talking about today in this pre-linguistic skill series, and we walk through this list and we figure out that they have a lot of other things before skill number nine. They're missing some numbers before then. And so um, for some kids, this is where we start in speech therapy because they've mastered the other skills that we've already, that we ran through earlier. Their play's good. Their receptive language is good. They respond to people. Their joint attention is present. So for some of you listening to this series, especially if you're a parent or if you're a therapist to that Let's just stick with parents, especially if you're a parent and you're just talking about your one child who, again, has all these pre-linguistic skills mastered. He's just expressive language for whatever reason is not developing. And so for a lot of our little friends, this imitation piece is where we're going to begin because that's their primary problem. But again, for a lot of our little friends, they're missing those other pre-linguistic skills. So we want to be sure that we're looking at that. And let me just give you a little um, heads up or a little plug here for this this chart, 11 skills toddlers master before words emerge. This is from my therapy manual. Let's talk about talking, which is the series that we're doing right now on the podcast. It is a whopper of a book because you can see 337 pages or so. And it really walks through all of these pre-linguistic skills like we've done here in this podcast series. And really helps you understand not only what the skill is, but how to teach it, how to explain it to other people, which is so important if you're a therapist. And so you can you can get that information. But I love the chart because it really lists the prelinguistic skills, how this looks so you can tell if a child has mastered that skill or not, why that skill is important to language development, which is so important to parents, you know, to be able to say, like with skill number nine here, imitates actions, gestures, sounds, and words, what we're talking about today. And then why is that important? Because toddlers learn to talk by repeating what other people say. And they can't repeat what other people say until they've learned to imitate at these easier, earlier levels. But this tool is so important. And so I really encourage you to get your own copy of the manual. Um, and the, the chart is a really, really important part of that. And it also lists the beginning strategies. So you can identify which skills are missing or which skills are just barely there. They're just emerging, but we've got to strengthen them so that children really own these skills and master them. So great, great tool that I wanted to mention there. All right. So as we are looking back here at imitation, we've already talked about 
kind of the backward um, hierarchy here. We started with the imitates words and sort of walked it down. But what I'm going to do now is really look at this just really, really quickly with how imitation develops because you've got to pinpoint when you're working with a child where the level of imitation starts to break down. And again, sometimes children look like they're pretty scattered. They may have a word or two, and you think you should be working up here at the word level when honestly, they're just splinter skills. And so those little words may be pop-out words or words that somehow that child, again, may use pretty frequently and pretty consistently, but his foundation isn't, isn't secure or isn't firmly established. So he's not going to be able to make any further progress until we back up and work on these easier, earlier levels. And so if you are taking this show or this course, watching this show for continuing education credit and you pay your five bucks at Teach Me to Talk to get that certificate, you'll also get this great handout which we do handouts for every single show, but you have to get the continuing education credit to get the handout, the pay your five buck processing fee. But it's got your sequence of how imitation skills develop, and so you can help a parent kind of walk through that if you're a therapist, or remind yourself, you know, the reason that he's not using functional words, which, you know, we all kind of focus on, is because that's a level seven, because we've got six other <laughs> levels of imitation that a child has to imitate first. And so if you've purchased the show, go ahead and get your, or purchase credit for the course, the show, go ahead and look at your handout now, because we want to walk at, uh, walk through the sequence of how these imitation skills develop, because this is back to my point. You've got to figure out where the breakdown is. And by breakdown, I don't mean where a kid can't do anything. I mean where a kid only has a few little instances. And so, again, this is what I started to say. Sometimes we'll have a kid with a word or two. And we think, oh, great, they're up here at level seven. And then we still just bang our heads working at level seven, working at functional words when a kid can't really do it because he's missing skills at the easier, earlier levels. And so what we should be doing is backing up and, and figuring out where are where is this kid solidly performing, and then we bump up one little level from there. So look at your handout if you have uh, purchased that, that uh, $5 credit for that. And some parents are emailing me and saying, hey, I just want to let you know, I'm, I'm not a therapist, but I'm buying all these shows. I don't care anything about all the certificates. I just want to get the handouts. The handout has been so great for me to really help me understand. And so you want to really walk through uh, this sequence. So the first one is imitates actions with objects. So what does that mean? That means if you're playing with a kid and you do something, they copy you during play with the, with the action, with the toy. So let's say that you are working with a child and let's say, let's say you're doing something really, uh, really just uh, home-based. And so you, you're not, you don't have any toys there. It's not like your little therapy office or your therapy room at school or your, you know, here in my beautiful clinic where kids come here in central Kentucky. It's not that. Let's say you're in a family's home and you're trying to teach mom and dad about imitation. So you've gone in the kitchen and you're playing together with the child. And so you've reached in the cabinets and you've gotten a bowl out and you've gotten a spoon out. And so the kid, you take the bowl and you start to really stir, you know, and you're, you're playing and you're saying, oh, we're going to cook, 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 mm, mm, mm. stir, stir, stir. And so a kid who's mastered level one is going to think that's hysterical. 
hopefully, or fun, or he's going to want to do it too. And he's going to rip that, that spoon and that bowl away from you. And he's going to start to stir, stir, stir. That's how you know that a kid has mastered actions with objects. And so something that they really haven't seen, or something that they maybe would not naturally do, this is your best way to measure it. You're, you're modeling something new, and they begin to do that with a toy too. And a lot of times we'll see kids, like, again, with toys that they've never played with before. And so kids who have, uh, whose cognitive skills are emerging may sort of figure that out and figure out what to do with a toy. But a lot of times kids, especially if it's novel, something they've never seen before, we really have to show them how to play because otherwise they're just going to going to explore the toy or try to use it and, and you know, just kind of hit and miss, trial and error. Until you show them how to play, then they can begin to copy that. You Let's say that it's a toy that they can't figure out how to operate it, and you show them that maybe that there's a button that they push and it releases something, you know, a spring that releases a pop-up part of the toy or whatever. But until you show them how to do it, they've not noticed that on their own. And then once you show them, they begin to copy that and they do it. Typically, children who have well-established play skills have already mastered this level because they've not only gained enough experience with objects and with toys that they, that they know enough about the world and how toys work that they are able to, again, through the process of trial and error, figure out how things happen. But a lot of our little guys, especially those with global developmental delays, they aren't playing with toys because they haven't mastered that their cognitive development. They're, they're not there yet and... They don't imitate well enough yet. So when you have a little guy who really is kind of a roamer, who just sort of goes from thing to thing and doesn't really sit and play with very much for very long, or if he does, it's just so basic, maybe in and out, um, maybe a lot of visual exploration, that kind of thing, he's probably not imitating actions with the objects. And so that's where we have to begin with those kinds of kids. We have to start right there because they're not playing very much. They're not imitating us. And so... Uh, you, you've got to look at that, and you've got to you've got to say, "Aha!" You know, that's my first goal is I'm going to get him to imitate actions with objects. Toddlers with red flags for autism almost always, always, almost, almost, <laughs> always have to start therapy at this level where we really, really teach them how to imitate what we do during play because they are not naturally connected to people. And they have poor social referencing, which means that they don't watch people very much, like children, uh, typically developing children, or even children with other kinds of language delays, who are still pretty engaged with people. Uh, but kids that are on the spectrum or who have social interaction differences don't watch other people very much. And so their play skills, a lot of times, are so delayed because they haven't watched enough and don't have enough of their imitative capabilities uh, really facilitated with us kind of making them, <laughs> for lack of a better word, watch us and do what we do and getting them interested in that. And so that's level one, imitating actions with objects. So when a kid is a good player and when you have given, you know, you've played, sat down and played with him where he's, where you're doing a lot of different things with actions with toys and he imitates you, you think, Phew. Oh, he's past level one. We can go on. Let's look at what's next. The next level is level two. And we call this communicative gestures, but really it's imitating. We started out with actions with objects. Now we're going to imitate body movements. So these are kids. These are, at this point, we want kids who are not doing communicative gesture, gestural imitation are kids who are not waving bye-bye pretty quickly. And again, waving bye-bye is a 12-month skill. So if you have an 18-month-old who's not waving bye-bye or you have a 2-year-old who's not waving bye-bye consistently, consistently, he is not imitating at this 
second level. And so he might have waved bye-bye. He might wave bye-bye one time a week or one time every couple of weeks. That's not enough. And we know this is where the communication breakdown is occurring. This is where this breakdown in, in imitative abilities is occurring. So we've got to go back and teach that child how to imitate body movements so that he learns imitation at this easier early level, earlier level. And again, until a kid can do this kind of thing, he's not going to be able to talk. <laughs> and so sometimes parents will say, I really don't understand why we're working on gestures or this, this body stuff. You say, do you want him to talk? And again, you're not going to say it in that way. You're going to be a lot nicer than that. But your tone, again, your nicer tone, but your message is still, if you want him to talk... This is where we have to work on. Uh, this is the level we have to work on with him. This is the skill that we have to target with him. It's these body movements. And again, let me just say for therapists, when you get kids who are older than 12 months, who aren't waving bye-bye, who aren't clapping with you, who aren't doing things like raising their hands for touchdown or so big or some kind of little social game routine, they're not doing, they're, you know, a little game like I boom. They're not playing that with you. They are breaking down at level two. And so this is where you have to start with them with that. So copying body movements. And again, start with big gross motor things like jumping and running. And then we always start big and bring it down. And so then you're going to do things again like clapping or things like giving high five or something like that. And then you're going to bring it down and make it more functional like waving bye-bye, like pointing, those kinds of things. And so then... Once a kid can do those kinds of things, blowing kisses, shaking his head for uh, no or nodding his head for yes, once he can do those kinds of things, then we can bump him up a little bit and use sign language if you're a therapist. And a lot of times we put the cart before the horse and we start working on sign language when a kid isn't even close to being able to do that because he can't do gross motor imitation with us he can't run with us he can't kick with us he can't jump with us he can't do all that and again it's not that he can't do all that by himself it's the imitation piece so you've got to make sure that that's really connected it's not that a kid is running around your therapy space uh on his own it's when you start to run will he run with you when you are playing with a balloon and you punch the balloon he punches the balloon when you throw the balloon in the air he throws the balloon in the air when you blow on the balloon he blows on the balloon when he does all these kind of body movement and again the blowing that's really that next level up but my point is here until we get a kid really really imitating at this level we don't have a shot at getting words yet and so go back and look at that and your biggest indicator here is if you have a kid who's not using gestures consistently this is where the breakdown is You've got to get the body movement imitation going first. So that was level two. Level three is bumped up a little bit. You know, first we did level one, actions with the objects, and then we made body movements, big, bigger gross motor body movements, and now we're going to move up the body to their mouth. Now, this level is a little bit controversial because kids really don't have to know how to blow and suck and those kinds of things to talk. But that's not what we're really focused on here. Here, we're not focused on that, that physiological act. We're just focused on imitation. Can he copy something with his mouth? Can he click his tongue? Can he make a kissy sound? Can he open and close in imitation of us? Why is this important? Because we move these 
we moved this area to talk. And so a lot of times we'll have a kid who's out here imitating, but the breakdown really is here at this facial level. That's this oral motor movement level. And so that's what we want to pay attention to. But again, all kids don't need this level. And kids with, especially kids with apraxia, or it's a neurologically based um, motor speech problem, they often can't imitate these kinds of oral movements. And, we, and with those kids... It's so hard, you're just going to have to move on. And, and, uh, but my point here is, we've got to see this from a really functional level. They've got to be able to do something with their mouth before they can imitate uh, words. The next little thing we're going to bump up to is level four. And this is, we have done already here, we were doing some nonverbal actions with our mouths at level three. The next little level is vocalizations with your mouth. So we're, we're moving toward words because now we've added sounds. But these are things, again, that we're, that are not really words yet. These are things like fake coughing, <coughs> which I needed to do anyway to clear my throat. Uh, I've had the flu and I've got this uh, cough that just won't go away. So that was a good uh, good little clear for me. My, my daughter, who's in grad school right now, who had a lot better uh, voice training than I did, you know, has always reminded me, and I was talking to her on the phone yesterday, and she was like, Mom, you have coughed and coughed. This is just habitual now. You, you've got to hard swallow and hydrate. And I, I think it's so funny when you're when your kid, you know, when their knowledge just kind of comes back and bites you <laughs> with that. So a little side note for a little speech therapy joke for those of you who are speech language pathologists. All right, but here at this level, this vocalization is in play. This is where kids are doing things like fake coughing, fake sneezing. They might be uh, making some, uh, any little thing like um, like a, an audible inhalation, like a, like a gasp there, or a grunt, or any little vocalization that's just like a vowel or something. That, again, it's not very complex. It's not technically a word. We can't really quote-unquote spell it yet. Um, so anything like that, any little um, noise, like a carve that's more like, or something that's not like a word like beep, beep, or vroom, vroom. That kind of comes next. But any little thing like uh, just a little sound effect kind of thing, that's the next thing. And why is that important? Or something like blowing raspberries, like, or, you know, even a different kind of raspberry that's back further in your mouth, like a snore or a snort. Those kinds of things are so important because that's how kids start to vocalize purposefully, which we just talked about back in pre-linguistic skill number eight. So those... Level four of vocalizations in play, what we really, really want to get next. And I'll tell you, this is where I start with a lot of our little guys in speech therapy, not with words, but when imitation, when they're pretty good players and they've got some gestures going already, and I think, well, I'm just going to bump them up. I'm going to see what they can do with this. This is a lot of times where the breakdown really occurs because they're not doing a lot of those sound effects, or they might have two animal sounds. And what, what happens there? You know that's where they can be successful. They just need a broader repertoire of those kinds of uh, examples here at that level. And so... You listen and you think, well, this is where the breakdown occurs because they are playing with actions and uh, actions. They they are playing with toys and they can imitate me with actions and objects. And their gestures are coming along. They're pointing and showing mom what they want. They're doing a lot of little tricks like blowing kisses and you know waving bye bye and all kinds of little gestures like that. And then you start to think, well. What? Where can I go next? You know, you may not necessarily do those level three things that we just talked about, 
but you go to this level and you think this is this is where they are because this is where I'm, I'm hearing them they only have a couple little sound effect kind of things and so this is where you would start with therapy and you would just build and build and build and get more examples of that now if you're listening to this and you think okay that all sounds great but I need some more examples uh, you know this this show series is from that bigger book that I showed you that therapy manual but building verbal imitation skills in toddlers is uh, the therapy manual that really takes these levels. You know, this is just one little chart, and let's talk about talking. One little skill, not chart, I'm sorry. One little skill in our whole chart of prelinguistic skills here. With the big book, let's talk about talking. But if you have a kid that primarily it's, it's, it's solid, just a solid expressive language problem. There are no other problems. This is really a better book for you. And the char- again, a chart in this book really gives you so many examples. And then you can read in each of the chapters on those various levels with what specific directions would be to really, really help you and give you some ideas, <coughs> excuse me, for working on uh, those kinds of skills. So here, vocalizations in play, those kind of sound effect things. And, and so what do you do when you're working on that with a kid in therapy? Well, you don't focus on words. You just make every sound you can think of when you're playing. So if I, you know, here with a cup, what kinds of sounds would I make? I would slurp like I'm drinking. I would do a big exhale. I might do a gulp. That's the kind of thing you do in therapy. So you think about when you're playing with cars and trucks, what do you do? You make crashing sounds, you know, and you might bump up a little bit to the next level, exclamatory words like beep, beep. Are those kinds of sound effects where, again, we bumped them up just a little more, where now the sound effects sound more like words. So this would be like animal sounds, like moo and woof, 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 or those kinds of things, where now you, you're adding more sounds. You're combining, you know, like woof there. You've got your initial constant, and then you have a vowel, and you have a final constant. Even if a kid's not really doing that, doesn't get the on woof, but he's trying woof, woof, woof. He's sequencing those those uh, phonemes there. He's, he's getting closer to words, right? I mean, I even count that as a word because if I can spell it, it's a word, right? So that next little level where we bump up to that. So this is where I start so many kids is at this sound effect kind of levels. And sometimes parents don't get it, but when you explain it to them, you say, he's already trying this. You know, he tries to say bok, bok, bok like a chicken or he goes to pant like a dog. He did that for me today in therapy. This is where he can be successful. We've tried words where he's not there yet. So that's what you have to do is get back to this level where they can be successful. And this is what we've already said. We're going to back up to where the communication breakdown uh, first begins to occur. So that's level five exclamatory words. Level six, we bump it up a little more. It's automatic speech and verbal routines. So this is where kids do start to say words, but it's highly contextually bound. Now, if you're a therapist, you probably understand that. But if you're a parent, you're thinking, what in the world is she talking about? That means that the conditions have to be just right for them to say the word. So let's think about something like saying, ready, set, go. A lot of times kids can't at this level, late talkers can't say go unless what? Unless they first hear you say, ready, set. So the context is them hearing you say, ready, set. Then, and only then, can they say go. You might have an example like this with um, counting. Like, let's say a kid's three, but he's minimally or nonverbal. 
and you you ask him how old he is, and he cannot come up with three for his. He just can't say it. He cannot cannot answer that question. He he might even he might even understand it, but he can't get there yet. A lot of times it's that he doesn't understand it. But unless but if you count, if you say one, two, and he pops out three, that's that's an example of automatic speech and being contextually bound because he cannot. D- Produce that word unless the situation is just right. So automatic speech is a really important part and piece for helping a lot of our little late-talking friends master. A lot of our kids who are apraxic or who have suspected childhood apraxia of speech, if you want to be the most technical about it, this is how we really get words going because their imitation is not good. I mean, that's one of the markers of apraxia. And so even if we go back and we're working on this chart, you know, we've made sure that they can do a lot of gestures and we've made sure that we get these sound effect kinds of things going. They really need so much practice here at this level six with automatic speech and verbal routines. And then you may have to use this technique for a long time, even to teach almost every new word where you, you just get it in, a, in automatic or you make it like a carrier phrase. I have a little guy that I'm working with now that I've worked with for consistently not quite a year yet uh did some kind of hit and miss visits at the beginning kind of to get him going because he was so young and our space wasn't open yet um and so that's one of the things that we had to do for a long time with him is really set it up like a carrier phrase where um where we're saying he he really couldn't say moo unless we says a cow unless we said a cow says and did that expectant waiting and kind of that fill in the blank or the close method is what we call it but if you're a parent you might think about fill in the blank there and we had to do that for a long time and even now on days when he's quieter I mean he's talking a blue streak now but on days that he's quieter in therapy, his and his mom is excellent. I mean, she just does this so automatically. I, I just, she's just a great mom, and it's really embraced all these strategies that work for him. But she'll get him going with that, and that's sort of how we get him going. And you can't really ask him what does the cow say. I mean, you can now, but for a long time, he could he, he could only do it if we did it in that context of him. You know, kind of getting that running start where we start at the beginning of that. Or um, where, where we just set everything up like that. And so that's a really powerful technique if you've never done that before. All right, so we're up to words. We've gotten automatic speech and verbal routines. We're using some words, but they're only in specific situations. The next thing really is words. So now we're finally at words. So can you see how for a kid, if you started at the word level and you're just getting nowhere... Well, no wonder, <laughs> because he's had to master all these easier earlier levels. And a lot of times, even as speech-language pathologists, we understand this theory, but we're terrible at putting it into practice. And so if that's you, I hope today, from this point on, <laughs> you'll learn some strategies and you will make yourself do it. You'll say, I'm not going to start with words with this kid because he can't imitate gestures or he can't imitate any kind of play sound with me so why am I going to start at words I'm not going to waste his time I'm not going to waste mom's time I'm not going to waste my time I'm going to back up and start with something easier and earlier okay and that's level seven and then the next one is short phrases so kids who um, have 35 to 50 functional words spontaneously then they're ready to imitate phrases and some kids have a really hard time with this they may even have vocabularies of 100 words 150 words but they can't yet combine 
it's because they've got to go back and have practice at the imitative level with phrases. And sometimes it's that they can't combine because of cognitive issues. They can't really join two ideas yet. And you'll see that in play because they don't want to join. They won't put the man in the tractor. And they, you know, they, they, if they're playing with the baby, they want the clothes ripped off. They really won't brush the baby's hair, anything like that. They just want to hold the baby. They can't combine ideas yet. So that's on a, from a cognitive perspective. That's why they're not doing phrases. So you got to really know what the problem is. Go back and fix that. And then you teach them how to imitate phrases. And then the phrases are going to come in. But that's a little bit technical for what we're talking about right now. We're really just focused on this imitation piece. So those were those eight levels of imitation. So now what I want to do is talk to you about, we, we talked about how to, what all these imitations are, or what all these levels of imitation are. And we talked about we're going to figure out exactly where the breakdown occurs, and we're going to make sure that every child has, gosh, you want them to have 10 or 12 examples per level before you really think that they've mastered it. But sometimes that's a lot. But you got to have more than a couple. If you just say, oh, he has, he can give me five and he can clap. He's mastered, mastered gestures. No, he hasn't. <laughs> You've got to have a lot more than that. Amy Weatherby actually says you need to, kids need to have 16 gestures by 16 months. So if you have a two-and-a-half-year-old who's not doing 16 different gestures, that's a problem, okay? And so you got to really, again, go back and work on those skills before you can help a kid move forward. And so what we're doing here is we determine what a kid can't easily imitate, and we start there. And so that's, that's uh, how you determine your starting point for therapy. So other things that you can do here is really set the stage for imitating. And again, this is going to be where you are very intentional. So you let a child know that it's his or her turn to imitate. And you, a therapist a long time ago that used to have a website called this, your tell me face. And so this is where you're going to, again, you know, oh, kind of get up. We talked about that running start, but where you are doing everything you can to set the stage here, where you're leaning forward, where you're looking expectantly at them, you know, you've got big eyes where, you know, a lot of times we kind of do that gasping where our body language really says what? It says, it's your turn. It's your turn to talk here. It's your turn to imitate what I've modeled for you. And so that's what you really, really want to do. And so parents don't naturally get that. You've got to really talk about it. And they may see you do it in therapy but unless you're saying something to them like, hey, I, I, you got to do this too. This is when he imitates the best. It's when I, and I, I call it the same thing I've done here on the show. I say, it's when you set the stage. It's when you're leaning forward. It's when you're looking at him like, you know, when, when you're doing your little anticipatory look here. And you teach a parent to do that. And you teach them to do it all day long. And guys, it works. For so many kids, that's kind of the missing piece is the expectation and the, 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 pregnant pause to wait uh, to hear that. So help a parent really learn how to understand that as a therapist if you're working with a parent like that. So in the first, the other thing that we can do really is model, 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 model what we want a kid to imitate. And again, we have to be so intentional about this where we're modeling and then we're doing that expectant wait there, that expectant pause. And so in the first two levels that we looked at, Imitating actions with objects and body movements, you can take a kid's arms <laughs> and hands and make them do it, right? And so you want to provide three to five models of you just doing what, whatever level you're working on, you doing it first, and then you help him do it, especially if you can, if he's down at those easier early levels, actions with objects and communicative gestures, you help them, you 
make him, assist him, <laughs> give him some physical support to, to uh, help him be able to do that. But you can't really do that when you get up here to your mouth. Now, you can do prompt and all your other oral motor, blah, blah, blah. You can, we're not going to talk about that today. You can do some of that, but you really can't make a kid do it with his mouth. He's, you've got to really master that expectant pause and that body language that tells him and your facial expressions that, you, that it's his turn to imitate. And so you just do, you just model, model, model. And, and uh, Dr. Caroline Bowen, who's an expert uh, from Australia and a speech-language pathologist, an expert in child speech-language development, she says, you've got to model a sound or a word that you want a kid to imitate 12 to 18 times before you can realistically expect him to be able to imitate that. That's how long it takes a child to process something new and get that get it in the loop where they know what you want them to do, but that's 12 to 18 times. So many times as parents, we give up way before that. And I had a, a dad say this to me years and years ago, and I've never forgotten it. He said, you know what, after watching you in therapy, well, if I tried as hard as you did, I think I think he would talk for me too. Hello? <laughs> Hello? You <laughs> got it. You got to try, right? And as therapists, sometimes we forget it. We can get a little, little lackadaisical too. Like... And we can be a little lazy. And so I might have said that word incorrectly. If I did, I apologize. But we, we might get a little bit lazy ourselves. And that's something, you know, I've really struggled with, uh, especially in this last few months. I kind of, you know, I had an extended break for a few years where I went through some personal uh, big family trauma and then had some recovery time for me personally where I didn't see kids all the time. Still wrote books, still did the website, still did all this other stuff, but I got out of the habit of trying hard with kids and talking about it and doing it are very different things. And so that's something I've had to kind of kick my butt in gear a lot of days. And pardon me if that was too, you know, rude for you to hear, but that's really what I had to do and still have to remind myself on a lot of days, try, 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 do it, model it, model it, model it, model it, model it, and keep on modeling until that child imitates. And so that's a really important lesson too. And so if you're kind of low energy, uh, that that's just, you're, you're just more laid back, that's your natural personality. Or like me, you kind of went through something that just kicked your teeth in and you didn't even really know who you were anymore and you forgot all you knew. You could talk about it, but you couldn't really do it. you got to just make yourself really, really, really try. And so how does this look? There's a beautiful example of this. It, if you have Let's Talk About Talking, that book, it's on page 246 where you are just modeling and modeling and modeling and waiting and waiting and waiting. And and you don't just say something like, the example in the book is about, uh, you know, it's an animal sound. Let's let's do it with a moo for a cow. <coughs> Excuse me. You don't just say, what's the cow say? Moo. No, you've got to really be in there and say, moo. That cow says moo. Moo, moo, moo. And then you're waiting. You're holding your cow up and or you're making your cow do whatever, but you, you give those, you model, and then you wait, and you model, and you wait, and you don't just do it five or six times, and for some parents, that'd be a lot, but what did Dr. Bowen say? She says, we're going to do it 12 to 18 times, and so sometimes for therapists and parents, we need to be keeping data not on the kid, but data on ourselves to make sure that we are modeling a new sound, whatever our target is, our, our play sound, or our word in automatic speech, or our functional word. We've got to make sure that we're modeling that 
frequently enough for a kid to be able to imitate there. Another thing that you can do to really help a child begin to imitate here is model but master withholding, meaning you're not going to give it to him right away. You're going to hold back a little bit. You're going to model that word or sound or whatever you're doing three to five times before you give him what it is that he wants. So if he wants the ball, you can't just really sit and and model it again 17 times without giving it to him because it's going to get too mad and he's not going to want to stay with you but you model it three to five times you let him play with it you do some things with it you're playing interactively and then you get it back and you start that whole process again where you where you make withholding sort of part of the routine because then he's a little bit more motivated to want to try to say the word too and again you don't (coughs) excuse me let me take a drink You don't do this with kids who aren't imitating those earlier levels consistently. You can't start out like this with a kid and do the withholding where you model and withhold and expect to get anywhere if he's not done these easier levels of imitation first. And that's why this this sequence of knowing how imitation skills develop is super, super important because a lot of times we as therapists misuse these techniques. We're up here at level seven with functional words and we're withholding but a kid and because we want him to imitate us. But again, we've defeated the purpose of this because he's not withholding, he's not imitating at these earlier levels. And so you can withhold all day long and what are you going to get? You're going to get a kid who hates your guts <laughs> because you don't ever give him anything he wants because, and he, and he can't, he can't say it. It's not that he won't say it. He can't say it yet. And so, again, you're, I think we're being mean when we're at this point because it's just not realistic for that kind of kid. So that's why the system with knowing the levels of imitation and working a kid up to that. And then when we get here, if a kid is imitating a lot of play sounds with us and his gestures are good now and he's, he imitates during play, then we can start to withhold for some words. When we're hearing some words in automatic speech, you've got a lot of little verbal routines going. But until we get there... We can't really use withholding or sabotage or any of these other techniques yet or choices because he can't imitate words well enough. And he can't imitate the words well enough because he hasn't imitated those easier earlier levels. And so, again, if you're a therapist and you haven't really connected all this, I mean, I hope this is your aha moment where you're saying, well, I've been doing this wrong. And you may not make an announcement like that to all your parents, you know, the next time you see them, you know, pardon me for my lack of application here you know you're not going to do that but in your own mind I hope you're having that conversation with yourself I mean this is the kind of thing that I talk to myself about all the time well Laura no wonder he's not imitating words girl because you broke your own rules here you he's not imitating sounds well enough you better back this up and be back here at the play sound level for a long time before you're and get him Get a lot of different, you know, 10 or 12 examples per level before you even start that withholding to try to get him to say words. And so, uh, you know, and, I, and I've been a little blunt about this, you know, in explaining it and, you know, kind of giving you examples like you're not going to go apologize to every parent on your caseload. You know, oh, I've been doing this wrong. But you do need to really buckle down and, and own this theory in your own mind. And, you know, I tell this story in um, my course the first course I ever taught, Early Speech-Language Development, Taking Theory to the Floor, where I had this uh, professor in grad school who just had a really honest talk with me one day. And she just said, Laura, you know, you're, 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 you're okay, you know. And, and she was not overly infatuated with me. <laughs> but she's like, you know, Laura, you know 
A, you know point A, what's wrong with the kid. You know what he can't do. And honey, you know B, she probably didn't say honey because she wasn't that nice. (laughs) We're in the South, but she wasn't that nice. She wasn't from the South. You know point B, where a kid needs to be, but you do not know how to get from A to B. And oh, it killed me. I mean, I cried all the way home that day hearing her say that to me. But it was the very best thing that anybody could have ever said to me. One, because it was the truth. (laughs) As, you know, and as a little bit arrogant that we get in grad school. But secondly, it was that it really impressed upon me that even though you know something and you know what to do, we don't always do it. So I hope that the course today has really, really helped you understand with imitation that you've not only got to know this stuff, but you've got to do it. And again, if you've been a little bit lazy or a little bit just disconnected with how you've applied all this theory, that's okay. Today is a new day. You can start from this point on to say, I'm never going to make a kid, I'm never going to withhold an object or a toy or something a kid wants until he's imitating me at these easier, earlier levels. And then, and only then, am I going to work up to using uh, the techniques like withholding and sabotaging choices. That's, that's when they're effective. It's when they can imitate at these easier, earlier levels. All right, so let me give you a couple more little things that I want to be sure that I'm telling you. When we have uh, talked about all these great examples in play, when we're talking about animal sounds and we're talking about car noises and we're even talking about doing little fun um, gestures and things, you can't do those things without context with a toddler or a preschooler. So you really can't sit them down and try to and say something like, oh, we're going to do animal sounds today. Get ready. Here we go. Meow. Here we go. Bah. Here we go. You can't do that. You've got to have props. All right. So that means that you've got to have toys, Uh, toys, not pictures. You can do it with pictures. You can do it with puzzles. You can try, especially if a kid likes it. I have a kid right now who's, oh my goodness, he's so good at puzzles. He's just phenomenal with puzzles. And so we use puzzles a lot because he likes it. But at the same time, you really need that representational object, 3D, so a kid can get it. And again, you're going to be working on his play skills too, but you got to have those props. And so sometimes if you're an early interventionist and you're doing consult- the consultative model where you're in homes with families and you don't get to take your toys anymore, you know, boo, I could don't get me started on that soapbox. But at the same time, you can't really teach these little play sounds without something to play with. And some families don't have these resources and so you've got to be a little bit creative when you're doing it. And another thing you have to do is really help parents get acquire some things to play with their kids with. And again, this might be a little controversial, and some of you are going to really kind of cringe and say, well, you can't make those judgmental statements about a family socioeconomic status, blah, 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 blah. I'm not very politically correct, if you haven't figured that out by now. I kind of, I go with the truth. I don't kind of go with the truth. I go with the truth. <laughs> and so you've got to have things to play with, and you've got to have props, and, and, and so that these things make sense. And can you see how, if you, if you, you know, who cares if you don't have the Fisher-Price farm animal set? Who cares? Do it with a baby doll. Do it with the baby doll's crying, you know, wah, wah, or, you know, fake sneezing, achoo, or, you know, you're going to pretend like you're going to wipe your little nose, or uh, where the baby doll is um, running, and, <laughs> you know, she gets out of breath, those kinds of things. You can do all of these things, but you've got to have some kind of toy to do it with, 
And so I, I don't mean to keep going off on my tangent here, but don't try to do these things without play and without it being play-based because that's going to make a lot more sense to a toddler and that's how toddlers learn everything. And you've got to get it where it's they almost don't even think about that they're talking or vocalizing. And for some of these little guys, it's got to be, it's, it's got to be, automatic it's got to be at that almost a reflexive level before they can make it intentional and so you've got to make it fun and exciting and get it uh, again i want therapy to be a kid's best hour of the week or best two 45 minute sessions whatever we're doing of the week and so you have got to be super super fun so that you can get a kid motivated enough um, to do that with you and to, to copy that to imitate that too um, there's some great examples in let's talk about talking this therapy manual that i showed you with all of the levels of imitation that we uh, talked about before and remember this is just one chapter and let's talk about talking. It's pre-linguistic skill number nine, um, which is great for if you're a parent and you're working with a child who's missing a lot of these skills that we've discussed in this series that I ran through at the beginning. But if you're really just working with a kid that imitation is is all that's he's not expressive language is what's missing and he can't imitate words and you're not quite sure with where his levels of imitation are. This therapy manual, Building Verbal Imitation Skills and Toddlers, will walk you through all that and see it's one chapter in this book, and it's a whole book <laughs> in this one. So I wanted to be sure that you knew about those resources uh, from Teach Me to Talk. And if you haven't been to my website, if you've just stumbled on this course or this show on YouTube, welcome to Teach Me to Talk. But I'd really invite you and encourage you to go to my website at teachmetotalk.com and um, read, this, read the post. I've had this website for... Gosh, this will be our 12th year. We started in 2008. So 12 years of information there uh, for you to benefit from and read and go through the old blog post and read those kinds of things. And if you are a therapist and you're listening the old way and not watching on YouTube, listening on through iTunes or Blog Talk Radio or however you consume the podcast and and I started the podcast in 2008. You might have been listening for a year or two, or you might have been here the whole time. And, you know, if, if you've been here since 2008, bless your heart, right? Send me an email because I just want to tell you how much I love you. <laughs> um, but don't forget that you can get your continuing education credit for just $5. And this is an hour. You've already listened to the show, so you might as well get the hour credit. So you can find out all that kind of information at teachmetotalk.com. Just scroll down. And I think it's uh, probably the second or third thing on the homepage where it talks about getting credit. And you don't have to be a speech pathologist uh, to get credit for this, you can uh, certainly that's credited through our national organization. But if you're a developmental interventionist or uh, whatever they call teacher people in your state and OT, you can count this for your own continuing education too. So go to teachmetotalk.com. You'll get a certificate. Um, it's an easy, easy, easy process. But I wanted to let you know about that if that's something that you haven't taken advantage of yet. All right, that's all for today. I want to thank you so much for joining me. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and you've just listened to or watched teachmetotalk.com's podcast. Thanks so much.